the way through the book, and we've got a lot of background information tonight to cover, and, uh, and, and, and it will be good. I promise you, it will be good. How many of y'all have ever gone through a trial you didn't think you was going to get out of? How many of y'all ever been in a place where you, you really thought this is it? I'm not going to make it out of this. Say amen. That's what we're going to be talking about the next several weeks. We are going to be dealing with facing the fire, facing difficulty. Uh, I don't think that we really can comprehend what going through the fire really means uh, when it comes to Christian persecution. In the United States, we've been very, very uh, uh, spoiled. Could we agree right there? Most countries in, in Sudan, uh, many countries all over the world are going through great, great persecution. But I do believe this. I do believe before the Lord comes, it's going to get rough. It's going to get very difficult. It's already beginning. Uh, we, we are finding Christian businesses being persecuted for taking a stand for biblical principles. Uh, uh, the uh, court just ruled against a, a, a cake business, an owner of a cake business who would not make a cake for a same-sex couple's wedding, uh, and the courts ruled against him. A private-owned business here in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, it is just beginning. It is just beginning. Uh, Peter is fixing to address a group of people who are fixing to go through the fire. And I think it's really, really important that we understand the truths that are found in here because I think, I think America is fixing to face some difficult times. Uh, now, whether you believe it or not, I promise you, I promise you, uh, uh, this truth will endure to all generations. Amen? And no matter what you're going through, I believe this will help. All right? First Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 1. We're going to just read a couple verses and I'll let you sit down. Uh, here this evening. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Uh, this is basically the intro, one and two, is basically the salutation, and we'll talk about that, but verse three begins the letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season. If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let me take a moment and say amen right there. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and diligently searched, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Verse 12. And unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things, now watch this, which things the angels desire 
to look into. You see, the angels don't know anything about redemption and grace. But they desire to look into the salvation that you have been freely given by God the Father. Somebody say amen right there. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your blessings. Uh, Lord, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for an opportunity to come and study the, the living word of God that will strengthen us, that will build our faith. Lord, I pray tonight that we will leave here <coughs> stronger than we've ever been before. Help us now as we receive your word. Lord, we're not receiving this as the word of men, but as the word of God. Lord, I praise you and I glorify you and I worship you. I magnify you and exalt you in this place tonight. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A Christian believer has a living hope. We just read in, in uh, verse number three that God has begotten us again unto a lively hope or a, a living hope because his faith and hope are in God. This living hope is the major theme of Peter's first letter. He is saying to all believers, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Now you'll understand as we go through this study why we need to be hopeful, why he was encouraging people to be hopeful. Uh, you don't tell somebody to be hopeful unless they are at some point in their life hopeless. Are y'all with me? Uh, he is encouraging some people who are very discouraged or who are fixing to go into a place and a time in their life that's going to cause them to be greatly discouraged or to lose hope. He's saying, be hopeful. Now, uh, by way of introduction, we're going to take the first two verses and look at uh, several things just to kind of give us some background information of this letter. It's amazing when you know who's writing it, and when you know who he's writing to and why he's writing, it kind of makes the letter come alive to us, all right? So let's do that first. Let's look at the writer. Let's look at Peter. Uh, Peter is an incredible, uh, uh, he is an incredible uh, uh, character in the Word of God. He, uh, <laughs> he, he, I love Peter because uh, he gets in trouble all the time, uh, but God uses him in a great way. He's very spontaneous. Sometimes his mouth gets engaged before his brain does. Can anybody relate to that? Uh, he, 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 he is very spontaneous. He, he, he's willing and he's able. And, and sometimes, you know, the Bible says your spirit is willing, but your flesh is. This is Peter. I mean, this is Peter in a nutshell. Uh, we see the writer, his name. First off, his name. In your notes, write that down. We see his name. His, his given name is Simon. But Jesus changed it to Peter, which means a stone. And you can look that up in the verses given. The Aramaic equivalent to Peter is Cephas. You'll see the word Cephas there. So Peter was a man with three names. Nearly 50 times in the New Testament, he is called Simon. And often, he is called Simon Peter. Perhaps the two names suggest a Christian's two natures. An old nature, Simon, that is prone to fail. And a new nature, Peter, that can give victory. Now, we see this all the time. We see this all through the Gospels. We see Peter as Simon. Uh, we see his old character. We see his old nature. We see his, his flaws, if you will, and the failures of Peter. But then on the other hand, you see his conquering spirit. You see him standing and willing to come out of a ship and walk on the water. You see him willing to draw his sword. Even though, even though he misunderstood, even though he misunderstood what Calvary was all about, he was willing to give his life to, to, to defend the Savior. Somebody say amen. 
We have two natures. When you get saved, that doesn't mean you're saved all the way. <gasps> now, now, don't hear me out. Hear me out before, before you go to crucify me. Uh, when I got saved, uh, my spirit got saved, but my flesh didn't get saved. I still struggle with it. I still struggle with the old nature. I still struggle with things in my flesh. Uh, I have a new desire. I have a new nature. I have a new appetite. I desire the things of God, but I still struggle with the old nature. And that's where we find Peter. And his name really helps us understand the struggle that he had. He, he wants to serve God, but he has issues with the flesh. Now, his name as Simon he was only a human piece of clay, but Jesus Christ made a rock out of him. Say amen. His assignment. Then we see his assignment. We see his name. We see his assignment. Peter and Paul were the two leading apostles in the early church. If you will take the book of Acts and go through Acts, it's, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. In other words, it's the Acts, the, the deeds, the doings, the works of the very early church. And the two main characters in all the book of Acts is Peter and Paul. Uh, Peter was primarily assigned, if you will, assigned to the Jewish people, and Paul was assigned to the Gentile people to reach the Gentiles. Their assignments were different. They worshiped the same God, but they had two different uh, uh, targets, if you will. Now, the Lord had commanded Peter to strengthen the brethren in Luke 22, you remember, uh, before, he, before he denied Christ. Before he denied Christ, him and him and the Lord had a conversation, and and uh, Peter really wasn't getting it, and 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 Peter and Jesus told him, said, "Look, before the crock crows, you're going to deny me thrice. You, let me just tell you right now, your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. And before the crock crows, you're going to deny me thrice. Uh, but let me tell you something. I have prayed for thee. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not." And when thou art converted, when thou art convinced, when thou, now some people think that means when you get saved. Peter was already saved. Peter was already a believer. Peter already knew who Jesus was because when he said, who do men say that I am? Peter said, uh, we believe thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told him, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, unto thee give I the keys. Are y'all with me? So he was not, he didn't need to get saved. He was, he, listen, he, converted means convinced. When thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. And you know who they turned to? They turned to Peter. It was his responsibility, his assignment, if you will, to strengthen the brethren. Not only that, but it was his assignment to tend to the flock. John 21, after the denial. And the restoration of Peter. Do you remember on the on the the, the shore when he is when he is uh, after they had gone fishing and they come back to the shore? Uh, Jesus he he speaks to him and he says, "Look, he says, if you love me, what does he say? If you love me, come on, everybody. If you love me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Feed three times. Three times he denied him. Three times he asked him, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And this is why." This is why Peter wrote in the scriptures, we'll, well, a few weeks from now we'll, we'll read, where he told, he told the bishops, he told the pastors, he tells the elders, those that are uh, to tend to the flock, feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. Some, some preachers think their only responsibility is shear the sheep. And some think it's their responsibility to fillet the sheep. Listen, you only fillet them one time and it's over. You're only shearing them once a year. 
but you got to feed them every day. And his responsibility was to feed the sheep, take care of the flock. The writing of this letter was part of this ministry. Peter told his readers that this was a letter of encouragement and a personal witness. If you'll look in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, don't do it now, look at it when you get home. Uh, he's referring to encouragement. He said, look, I want to encourage you, I want to lift you up. So we find the writer. He's a, he's a cool guy. He's a, he, he was very close to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you study the Gospels, you'll find out he was in the inner circle. Uh, there was Peter, James, and John. Uh, Jesus used him in a great way. Yes, he had great failures, but he had great successes too. Jesus used him in an incredible way to be a foundation uh, to the early church. He helped kick it. Now, Jesus was the foundation stone. Now, don't miss what I'm saying right there. Jesus was the foundation of the early church, but Peter was used primarily to unlock the door uh, to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. Listen, the Jews in chapter number 2, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, the, the Samaritans in Acts chapter number 8, uh, uh, when the Samaritans came in, they were half Jew and half Gentile. Then he unlocked the door of salvation to the Gentiles in Acts chapter number 10. So he used him greatly in the early church, in the founding of the early church. Are y'all with me? Say amen. Now, I want you to see uh, the occasion. Not the writer, or excuse me, the audience. The writer, the audience. Now, who was he writing to? Who is Peter writing to? He says in verse number 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We see two words here, strangers and scattered. Strangers and scattered. Hey, write that down in your notes, strangers. Peter called them strangers, which means resident aliens, sojourners, if you will. Uh, they are called strangers and pilgrims in chapter 2, verse 11. These people were citizens of heaven through faith in Christ and therefore were not permanent residents on the earth. Like Abraham, they had their eyes of faith centered on the future city of God. As John 17, 16 says, they were in the world but not of the world. Because Christians are strangers in the world, they are considered to be strange. In the eyes of uh, uh, the world, Christians have standards and values different from those of the world, and this gives opportunity both uh, for witness and for warfare. We will discover in this epistle that some of the readers were experiencing uh, suffering because of their different lifestyles. What does that mean? If you're saved, uh, you should be different. <laughs> you, you should be strange. You should talk strange when it comes to the rest of the world. You should dress strange to them. That doesn't mean you're odd. It means you're different. I don't think we need to go out of here looking like a bunch of freaks and looking like uh, crazy people, but I do believe we need to be different. I believe you can, you can dress modest and be different. I believe you can talk right and talk like a gentleman and talk respectable and talk honorably, and it's different than the world. They were strangers. They were not of this world. You shouldn't feel at home in this world. I, 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 love, I love some of the songs that we grew up singing. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Are y'all with me? This, the, problem, the problem with most Christians and why they get so bent out of shape for because of what things are happening on this earth is because their tent stakes are too deep into this earth. 
and they're not like Abraham. Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He said, I don't have a foundation in my house. I dwelled in tents, and a tent is a temporary thing. I'm waiting, and I'm looking for that permanent residence. I'm waiting for that permanent place. This world is not my home. It can all fall apart, but that's okay because this world is not my home. All hell can be breaking loose, but that's okay because this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Somebody say amen. They were strangers. Uh, They were in a temporary place. They were strangers, but they were also scattered. Uh, Listen, scattered. The Bible says in verse number two, they were scattered. And it doesn't just mean spread out. It's not, it doesn't just mean that. Uh, these Christians were scattered in five different parts of the Roman Empire, all of them in northern Asia Minor. The important thing for us to know about these scattered strangers is that they, that almost makes me sound like Waffle House, don't it? Scattered, stranger, covered, dunked, chunked, and all that. I don't know why I just thought about that all of a sudden. Amen. I must be hungry. All right, Griggs, we're going to Waffle House right after church. Amen. All right. Listen, the important thing for us, if you're here for the very first time, you don't never know what's going to happen on Wednesday night. Amen? It is what it is. Uh, These scattered strangers is that they were going through a time of suffering and persecution. At least 15 times in this letter, Peter referred to suffering. He used eight different Greek words to do so. Some of these Christians were suffering because they were living godly lives and doing what was good and right. Others were suffering reproach for the name of Christ and being railed at by unsaved people. Peter wrote to encourage them to be good witnesses to their persecutors and to remember that their suffering would lead to glory. Somebody say amen. That's the audience. Let's look at the occasion. Let's look at the occasion. Uh, They were scattered Christians. They were were, uh, across the empire there. Uh, uh, They were trying to live right, but their surroundings... Uh, they were surrounded by ungodly, unchristian people. Uh, you are missionaries. Everybody in here, if you belong to Christ, if you know Christ as your personal Savior and you're trying to follow Christ, you're going into a heathenistic society that's anti-Christ. The atmosphere is anti-Christ. The, the associations are anti-Christ. Everything out there is going to be anti-Christ. It's not always going to be friendly to your beliefs and your standards and your way of life. Now, uh, but it's fixing, in in this situation, Peter knew something was coming. Peter knew that it was fixing to get a whole lot worse than what it was now. All right, here's the occasion. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, right there in your notes. uh, 1 Peter 4, 12 says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. He knew that a fiery trial was coming, an official persecution from the Roman Empire. Now, when you got to understand this. When the church first began, they didn't see that. They didn't see the kind of persecution that was fixing to come. And as we read our notes, we see the first Christians were Jews, and they met in the temple precincts. And so the the Roman governments and the Roman officials, they thought that this was just a part of Kind of like you have Baptists and then there's Primitive Baptists and Southern Baptists and Independent Baptists. They thought it was just a sect of the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion. So they and which was a legal a legal religion in Rome. 
But when it became clear that Christianity was not a sect of Judaism, Rome had to take some official steps. Nero, he blamed the fire of Rome on the Christians in A.D. 64, he, using them as a scapegoat. Peter was probably in Rome about that time and was slain by Nero, who had also killed Paul. Nero's persecution of Christians uh, was local at first, but it probably spread. At any rate, Peter wanted to prepare the churches. Nero introduced official persecution of the church, and other emperors followed his example in later years. Peter, uh, Peter's letter must have been a tremendous help to Christians who suffered under the reigns of Trajan, Hadrian, and Diocletian. Now listen to this, this bird right here, Diocletian. Diocletian is considered the worst emperor in Rome's history and the greatest antagonist of the Christian faith. He led a violent attempt to destroy the Bible from the face of the earth. Under his leadership, many Roman cities had public burnings of the sacred scriptures. During the second and third centuries, this persecution age saw hundreds of Christians brought into the amphitheater of Rome to be fed by hungry lions. Thousands of spectators cheered them on. Many were crucified. Others were covered with animal skins and tortured to death by wild dogs. They were covered with tar and set on fire to serve as torches. They were boiled in oil and burned at the stake, as was Polycarp in the city of Smyrna itself in A.D. 156. One church historian has estimated that during this period, five million Christians were martyred for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Five million Christians died simply because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. They would not deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we got people that won't show up because it rained. We have people that will leave church because they got their feelings hurt. Because somebody didn't shake their hand. Or somebody didn't notice them walking down the hallway. Listen, we... I think, I think the majority of Christendom in today's world needs a spanking. Boiled in oil, fed to wild animals for the name of Jesus Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit revealed that to Peter. And Peter saw it coming. So he's trying to warn the churches it's fixing to get hot in the kitchen. What we're fixing to study, what we're fixing to read, is Peter's warning to the early church that hell was on the way. Even beyond having your items and your, your property taken from you, their, their, their houses was taken from them. Their, their way of making a living was taken from them. But even their very lives was taken from them. And Peter saw it coming. The Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter. And he penned these letters and he penned these words to be an encouragement to people who the fire was coming. Are y'all with me? Say amen. Now I want you to see the message. The message. 1 Peter is a letter of encouragement. Peter is preeminently the apostle of hope, as Paul is the apostle of faith, and John of love. As believers, we have a living hope because we trust in a living Christ. This hope enables us to keep our minds under control and hope to the end. When Jesus shall return, we must not be ashamed of our hope, but be ready to explain and defend it. 
An Old Testament believer called God the hope of Israel. A New Testament believer affirms that Jesus Christ is his hope. The unsaved sinner, now watch this, because this is going to set the table for the outline. This is going to set the table for the outline. And where hope begins. Where hope begins. You see, we have people watching on the internet right now. They're watching on the internet, and, and, and they, are, they are looking for hope. These are people that's not even in the state of Alabama. Do you realize there are people that sees your comments on Facebook, and they go to your church to see about what you've heard? And they see that somebody's speaking about hope, and they're watching right now. And you've got to understand something. There is no hope outside of Jesus. There is no hope outside of salvation. And when he begins his letter, when he begins to share why we have hope and where we have hope, he starts with salvation. Because without salvation, there is no hope. The Bible says clearly, clearly, clearly that without salvation, we have no hope. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.12, if he dies without Christ, he will be hopeless forever. This confident hope gives us the encouragement and enablement we need for daily living. It does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace and on the battlefield where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. I love this right here. Hope is not a sedative. It's a shot of adrenaline. It's a blood transfusion. Like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storms of life. But unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward. It does not hold us back. Are y'all with me? Say amen. We're going we're gonna to look at primarily uh, three things. Three things that are given here in this chapter. We're going to go about to verse number 12. Three different things that, that, that Peter gives us to strengthen our hope. Now remember, now remember, he's speaking to Christians who are being persecuted. Excuse me. He's speaking to Christians who are being tortured. He is speaking to Christians whose family members probably have already been killed or will be killed in the, in the present or in the future time. Uh, so he is speaking to people in a bad, bad way. Are y'all with me? Say amen. Now, first thing we want to look at, number one. Number one, I want you to look in verse number two. Verse number two. If you're there, say amen. First thing I want to look at is our new birth. Where can we find hope? Where can we find, what is going to be the source of our hope when the days get difficult? What is going to be the source of our hope when, when things get turned upside down, uh, when, when uh, the economy may crash, when, when the government comes against us? What, what, what may we look to? What, what can we see? Well, the first thing he brings up and the first thing he deals with is our new birth. Our new birth. Verse number 2. He says, The elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath, what's that word? Say it with me. Begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He uses, uh, again, the word born again in verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I'm glad to know that I have been born again. Amen. I saw this physical world by my physical birth. 
1973. But one day, because of my spiritual birth, I'll see a new world. Say amen right there. I have been born again. He said he has begotten or birth brought into life. I have been born again. Now, two things I want to share with you about this, this new birth that we share. If you're saved, we share this. Uh, uh, first off, I want you to write this down. I want you to see the involvement that's witnessed. The involvement that's witnessed. We see the involvement of the Father. We see the involvement of the Son. And we see the involvement of the Holy Spirit in verse number three, or excuse me, verse number two. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace multiplied. The plan of salvation includes the Father's electing love. The Father chose you. Say amen. It also includes the work of the Spirit in convicting the sinner and bringing him to faith in Christ and the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. Or there could be no salvation. We have been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Holy Spirit. It takes all three if there is to be a true experience of salvation. I'm glad to know salvation. I did not, I did not earn it. I did not work for it. I did not deserve it. It was God and him only. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I am so thankful for the God who chose me. I'm thankful for the spirit who convicted me that day when the man of God took the word of God and preached it with the spirit upon it and it pricked my heart and I realized that I was a lost sinner undone without God or his son. Being a preacher's kid, didn't matter. Uh, listen, being a church member didn't matter. Being baptized didn't matter. Knowing all the words of the Bible didn't matter. It did not matter. I was lost without Christ and I received the payment that Jesus made on Calvary and that day, glory filled my soul. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in my salvation and in your salvation if you're saved. Now, now, Peter didn't leave out your responsibility. Peter did not leave out your responsibility. He does not deny man's part in God's plan to save sinners. In 1 Peter 1.23, he emphasizes the fact that the gospel was preached to these people and that they heard it and believed. Peter's own example at Pentecost is proof that we do not leave it all with God and never urge lost sinners to come to Christ. What does that mean? He offers, they must receive. We have a responsibility to preach the gospel to every creature. Now, it's a shame before God. Now, listen to me. I need everybody to perk up just a minute. Listen to me. It is a shame before God to send money and resources across the ocean to tell somebody about Jesus if the home church won't cross the street to tell somebody about Jesus. Everybody needs to know. There was a song we used to sing in Bible college. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Amen? Now, we see the involvement in my salvation. But then I want you to see the inheritance. Not only the involvement that's witnessed, but the inheritance that's waiting. Man, I love... Now, now think about this now. Think about this. We're talking to people whose lives have been turned upside down. We're talking to people... Uh, in this letter, he is writing to people who probably, most likely, have lost everything they've ever worked for. 
Y'all with me? They probably lost their retirement. They probably lost their, their, their homes, their businesses. Everything that they've had of monetary value, most of them, they've lost. And they have nothing. Now keep that in mind when we read this. He, he has begotten us again in verse 3 into a lively hope. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, does that not take on a new meaning? When you understand who he's writing to. It's one thing to sit in this church and shout about this, but it's another thing if you don't have anything. It's a whole other story when, when somebody has come and stolen everything from you. It's a whole other story when, when you've just lost everything. For him to say, it's okay. There's something waiting on you when you get to glory. An inheritance. Uh, listen, as the children of the king, as the children of the king, we share his inheritance in glory. Romans 8, 16 says this. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Isn't that something? What does that mean? Whatever Christ owns, you own. Y'all get it about 10 o'clock tonight. It'll dawn on you what I just said. Whatever he gets, you get. Joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Note the description of this inheritance. It is totally unlike any earthly inheritance. For one thing, it is incorruptible. Nothing can ruin it. Because it is undefiled, it cannot be stained or cheapened in any way. It will never grow old because it is eternal. It cannot wear out, nor can it disappoint us in any way. In 1 Peter 1, 5 and 9, Part of this inheritance is called salvation. Now, this is, now this, is, this is something that will really crank a tractor. The believer is already saved through faith in Christ. But the completion of that salvation awaits the return of the Savior. Then we shall have new bodies and enter into a new environment, the heavenly city. Somebody say amen. Man, I'm ready for that day, aren't you? I'm ready to have no more sorrow. I'm ready to have no more aches and no more pains and no more difficulties and no more disappointments. Are y'all with me? We're looking for that day. We're looking for that day. We have an inheritance. It's coming. It's coming. He encourages them by sharing with them the blessings of their new birth. You see, see, see nothing else matters unless you get saved. Nothing else matters. None of, none of the rest of this is going to mean anything to anybody unless you know Jesus as your personal Savior. So, preacher, what are you trying to say? What I'm trying to say is this. If I did not know Christ as my Savior, if I didn't know without a shadow of a doubt that if I was to die right now, I was 100% sure I'd go to heaven, uh, before I left this building, I would make sure. Matter of fact, we're going to have some folks at this altar. I don't know if Johnny's in the building or not, but we're going to have some folks at this altar, and we'll, we'll go ahead and make sure we can have somebody here to take a Bible and show you how because it's that critical. It's that important. The days that are coming, the difficulties that are coming, listen, you don't want to face it without Christ. Salvation is most important. Number two, he describes our new birth. And number two, I love this one, he describes our safekeeping. 
he describes our safekeeping. Now, if you're new to temple, <clears throat> you're in a place that believes in eternal security. Now, what that means is once saved, always saved. Uh, I, 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 my dad, my dad, when he first got saved, uh, uh, my my uncle was uh, affiliated with a different a different denomination, and my dad got saved in the Independent Baptist Church at a revival. And uh, and and I'm talking about he got the verily verily kind. Y'all with me? I'm talking about he went to everything. He got saved all over. Amen. And he was so excited. You know when people really get saved when they tell somebody else about it. And he went and told everybody in the world. He went to my uncle Junior. My uncle Junior, uh, he was lost and 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 uh, uh, he was. He just in a bad way, and 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 my dad went to him and said, "Man, you got to come to this church. You got to get what I got. I got saved. Let me tell you something, man. I got something Ajax can't wash, wash off. Amen." And he said, "Oh no, my uncle, my uncle Junior said, oh no, I can't go there.'" He said, "Why not?" He said, "They believe in once saved, always saved." My dad said, "Nah." -uh. <laughs> he didn't know. He's a baby Christian. He had no idea. He didn't know. He didn't know what that meant. He said, no, -uh. so he went back to the pastor, and the pastor said, yes, that's, that's what we believe. Let me show you why. Let me, let me teach you what the Word of God says about eternal security. So he did that, and we're going to do that now. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's not be too critical. Let's not be too critical and uh, 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 be too judgmental about people who are not, uh, have not been enlightened to the Scripture. And what I mean by that, you may have a friend, you may have a loved one, uh, uh, that, that does not believe in eternal security because somewhere along the line somebody told them that. Y'all with me? I, I know of, I know of uh, friends of mine that believe that if you, you don't believe in eternal security that you're, you're lost, that you didn't get saved. Well, let me tell you something. My dad didn't know one way or the other. He just knew that night he got saved. Are y'all with me? And he learned the truth after that. But here's the deal. We believe in eternal security uh, because we believe in the grace of God. And we believe in the power of God. You say, where are we getting with this? Watch this, watch this. He wants to en encourage these believers who are going through the fire and going through difficult times. Now watch what he says. First he told them about salvation, the new birth, in verses number 3. Verses number 2 and verse number 3. Now watch what he says. He says, who are, verse number 5. Y'all with me say amen? Who are, what's that word? Yeah. Who are, yeah. say it again, who are yeah. kept. They're kept. Two things I want you to see. Two things I want you to see. First, a, the scripture's promise. You see, we don't give opinions in here. If we, if we share with you a truth, we got to give you a Bible for it. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you, if you ever get into a discussion, with, I, don't, I don't encourage nobody to argue with nobody. Because a mind changed against his wills of the same opinion still, you don't need to argue with anybody. But if you are in a, a, a discussion about what you believe, you got to have a Bible. Because what you think is irrelevant. Now, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to help you with something. What you think is irrelevant. The Bible says man is as the flowers and the grass of the field. It withereth and die in the gone. But the word of God abideth forever. And the authority, the only authority we have is the word of God. So before you tell me what you think or what you believe, you got to have the book. Y'all with me? So let's see what the book says about this situation. 
It says they are kept. Say that word with me. They are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now, all believers, let's go to our notes, Scripture's promise. All believers are being kept by the power of God. The word translated kept is a military word that means guarded or shielded. The tense of the verb reveals that we are constantly being guarded by God, assuring us that we shall safely arrive in heaven. Now, how long will he guard us, we, the question is, because that's one that it's, it's, it's people debate about. Well, how long does he do this? Until Jesus Christ returns and we will share in the full revelation of his great salvation. Say, where do you get that? This, this mic keeps moving, so I, I, it's just a nervous habit I got. It keeps dropping on me, so you'll have to adjust it up there, Brother Dustin. Ephesians 1.13, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that ye believed. When? After that ye did what? Believe. believe. That's salvation. Ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the moment that you believed in Christ, the moment that you got saved, the moment you received him, you were sealed. Say that word with me. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance when, when you are sealed until what? The redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, when he comes and gets you. When he comes and receives what he has paid for and what he has purchased, you're sealed until he gets here. And a and cool thing about this verse right here, uh, I grew up in a, a church parsonage, a pastor's uh, a house, I guess. For the, We never owned anything. We never owned a house, never bought a house, didn't know nothing about that. When I moved here, uh, uh, we, we was going to buy our first house there, and, uh, and, and we, we, you know, we looked at the magazines and where, where we was going to find one that we, we thought we could afford and that type of thing. And, and so I told the lady, I said, we'll, we'll pick this right here. This is what we'll offer. And she said, okay, I need $500 earnest money. What? I'd never bought a house. I didn't know what earnest money was. The only earnest I knew went to camp. Say amen. <laughs> I said, $500? Earnest money? I said, what's earnest money? She says, oh, 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 I'm sorry, sir. She says, that'll be part of the thing. But all that does is let the owner know that you're serious about your offer. And about that time, the Holy Spirit says, you remember that verse you just read? God sent the Holy Spirit to let you know he was serious about his offer. And the moment that you believed in him, the Holy Spirit took residence into your heart and into your life, and he sealed you until the day that Jesus comes to get you. Church, say amen. I got more verses. Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed. Say that with me. Whereby ye are sealed. Unto the day of redemption. When? Till he comes and gets you. Till he comes and gets you. Now, let me, let me, man, I want to preach right there a minute, but we'll, let's get B. Let's get B and we'll come back to it. All right. First, uh, our safekeeping. We're talking about eternal security. We, we're, we're, we have the scripture's promise, A. Then B, we have the sovereign's power. Why do we trust? Why do we believe that we're eternally secure? We have the sovereign's power. It says they are kept by the power of God. Not by your willpower. 
Not by your ability to stay clean. Not by your ability to do what's right. Not by how, because how many of y'all know you ain't got much in none of that? That's not what keeps us saved. How much I go to church is not what keeps me saved. How much Bible that I read is not what keeps me saved. How, much, how many good deeds I do, that's not what keeps me saved. The only thing that keeps me saved is the power of God. We are kept by the power of God. Now watch this. Believers are not kept by their own power, but by the power of God. Our faith in Christ has so united us to him that his power now guards us and guides us. We are not kept by our strength, but by his faithfulness. Y'all, hear, y'all, y'all need to underline that. Y'all, y'all need to underline that. We are not kept by our strength, but by his faithfulness. In other words, even when I'm not, he is. Let me say that again. Even when I'm not faithful, he is. Amen. Boy. Mm. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now watch what he says. And I give unto them. Come on now, don't slow up on me. Some of y'all disappointed. Now, come on. And I give unto them, and they shall, they shall, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Why? My Father, my Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Mm. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It's really good stuff right here. Some of y'all been worried to death whether you're going to make it or not. If you know him, honey, you're going to make it. Verse 31. Romans 8, 31. Romans 8, 31. Y'all there say amen? What shall we say then? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh also maketh intercession for us. In other words, when, when the devil comes and accuses me, Jesus stands up and says, help, he belongs to me. He stands up making intercession for me. Amen. Then it says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword? It is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded. Say that with me. I am. Say it. I am. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor uh, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Give him praise and glory right there, right there. Say amen. Now, First Peter says we are kept. Say that with me. We are kept. 
kept by the power of God. Now, let me give you a little, let me give you a little uh, commercial. People who are other denominations, other affiliations, if you will, that believe you can lose your salvation. Here's the argument they have with Baptists that believe in eternal security. Well, you Baptists, you believe you can just do anything you want to, and, and, and that's fine. No, that's not what we believe. That's not what we believe. Here's what we believe. The moment you get saved, the moment you get saved, you're sealed. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you'll never make mistakes again. Doesn't mean you'll ever falter or fail. It means you're sealed. You're saved. You're forgiven. The only difference between a, a, a law sinner and a saved sinner is forgiveness. But there is a change. And there is a difference. Listen, a law sinner don't mind sinning. A saved sinner don't like sinning. You can't, you can't live in sin and be saved. The Bible says if we practice sin, if that is part of our lifestyle, if we practice that, then we're not saved. We change. Something's different. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. They're not going to be new overnight, but they're going to get there. Y'all with me? Now, let's, let's clarify this. If, if, well, I got to sneeze. I got to sneeze. Devil's messing me right now. I'll look that way, Miss Amber, I promise you. I won't, I won't get you right there. I've never in my life had to sneeze while I'm preaching. You tell me the devil don't want you to hear this? I'm serious. This is an important truth. This is an important truth. Listen, the devil has so many people worried to death, doubting, trying to, trying to make it to heaven. You don't try to make it to heaven. You're either going or you ain't. You don't need to sit around worrying and doubting and fretting. Are y'all with me? So the devil don't want you to get this truth. Now, here's the thing. If you're saved and you return to your life of stupidity, he ain't going to let you. According to the New Testament, the Bible says, Whom he loveth, he chasteneth. Now, how many of y'all grew up in the age where you still got whoopings? chastening and you know what that means how, how many ever heard this only reason i'm whooping you because i love you out you lying scoundrel you don't love me <laughs> until you had kids then i still don't believe it amen I, wait he all i know he loved me an awful lot amen that's whoo but it's true you chasing your child because you don't want them to end up a convict. You chasing your child because you don't want them to, you love them and you want them to do right. Well, Jesus loves you. God loves you. And the Bible said, whom he loveth, he chasteneth. Now watch this. If ye are without chastening, you're a bastard, not a son. Now, I didn't cuss. That word means illegitimate. And what Christ is saying if you went into church, if you went into church and you made a profession of faith, but nothing changed, nothing's different, you're still living the old lifestyle, you're still doing that old thing, and God is not chastening you, you don't belong to it. It's as simple as that. 
It doesn't mean you lost your salvation. It means you never had it. You see, there's a difference. Well, you believe it. No, no, no. I believe they never had it. Because if they ever had it, they still got it. Now, if God is chastening you, you say, how far will he go with it? According to the word of God, God will chasten you till you either come back or he takes you home. What, what, did, Paul, what did Paul tell the church in Corinth? He talked about turning a man's flesh over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the soul may be saved. What does that mean? I believe there are people who are born again, saved, and they leave this world early because they bring a reproach on the name of Christ and God has tried and tried and tried to bring them back and they refused and God killed them. I believe that. So what are you saying, preacher? I don't think you need to rest on your eternal security. I don't think you need to treat your eternal security as something that you, it's your, it's your ticket, your get out of jail ticket. It needs to give you peace that God is in control and God's got power to keep you safe. But you never need to use it as an excuse to sin. Paul said, shall we sin? God forbid. Are y'all with me? Because I promise you, He's got a belt, and he knows how to use it. He, there's three, can I just, let's just be talk right here a minute. We've got four minutes, amen. There's three stages of correction. Rebuke, chastening, and scourging. Each one is more difficult as, as it goes. And then the rest is death. If those three don't work, God will take you home. What's my point? I want to stand and rejoice that I'm saved and I'm eternally secure. I'm sealed unto the day of redemption. But I'm not going to say I can just go do whatever I want to do and everything's going to be fine. Because it's not. He will chasten me. He will come after me. Ask Jonah. Y'all with me? Listen, he encourages these people by talking about their new birth. He encourages the folks by sharing with them their eternal security. He said, you're kept by the power of God. No matter what Rome does, you're kept by the power of God. No matter what the infidels do, you're kept by the power of God. No matter what the cults say, you're kept by the power of God. Not your own ability, not even your own faithfulness, but we're kept by the power of God. And all God's people say it. Amen. We'll never do this, but let's try. Let's, let's do number three. We, we got to do number three. We got, we got to do number three because this deals with our trials. He says in, he says in, in uh, uh, let me get back to Peter. He says in, in verse number uh, six, verse number six of first Peter, you there say amen? Wherein ye greatly rejoice. What? In our salvation. We, we greatly rejoice in the hope that he's coming back to get us. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now what, what did we say? He told them about our new birth. 
He told them about our safekeeping. Now he tells them about our necessary trials. Our necessary, and those words are used on purpose, necessary. Preacher, you mean to tell me that all this pain I'm going through is necessary? That's exactly what I'm saying. Watch what the verse says. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, what's the next three words? Help me. If need be. We must keep in mind that God, now watch this, now watch it, look at your notes. We must keep in mind that all God's plans and performs here, all that he does for us, all that he plans, all that he performs in our life here, is preparation for what he has in store for us in heaven. He is preparing us for the life and service yet to come. Nobody yet knows all that is in store for us in heaven, but this we do know. Life today is a school in which God trains us for our future ministry in eternity. This explains the presence of trials in our lives. They are some of God's tools and textbooks in the school of Christian experience. Peter used the word trials rather than tribulations or persecutions because he was dealing with the general problems that Christians face as they are surrounded by unbelievers. He shared several facts about these trials. A, first, trials meet needs. Trials meet needs. He said, if need be. We wouldn't go through it if we didn't need it. The phrase, if need be, indicates that there are, so, there are special times when God knows what we need to go through in trials. Sometimes trials discipline us when we have disobeyed God's will. At other times, trials prepare us for spiritual growth or develop us. Even help to prevent us from sinning. We do not always know the need being met, but we can trust God to know and do what is best. Listen, trials meet needs. B, trials are varied. He said the word manifold, which literally means variegated or many colored. There's all kind of different kinds. There's all kind of different kind of trials. All kinds of different trials. God has grace to sufficiently meet the need. We must not think that because we have overcome one kind of trial, that we will automatically win them all. Trials are varied, and God matches the trial to our strengths and needs. Man, that is so good. Underline that. God matches the trial to our strengths and needs. C, trials are not easy. Trials meet needs. Trials are varied. Trials are not easy easy he said wherein you greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be ye are in heaviness 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 that means pain suffering difficulty peter did not suggest that we take a careless attitude toward trials because this would be deceitful trials produce what he called heaviness the word means to experience grief or pain it is used to describe our Lord in Gethsemane when he was in the, under such pressure that it, his sweat became as great drops of blood. The sorrow of saints at the death of a loved one. To deny that our trials are painful is to make them even worse. Christians must accept the fact that there are difficult experiences in life and not put on a brave front just to appear more spiritual. In other words, that old phrase, suck it up, buttercup. That, 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 that don't fly, amen? It's tough. They're going to be hard. There's going to be difficult. We don't need to minimize that. 
And when somebody else is going through a trial, we don't need to just say, hey, everything's going to be all right. It may not. It may not. We need to learn, listen, to depend on the grace of God. Not the escape from the trial. We may not escape the trial, but I promise you this, no matter what the trial, God's grace is sufficient. Are y'all with me? Say amen. Lastly, lastly, this will help you. Trials are temporary and controlled by God. Trials are temporary and controlled by God. It says, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season. Winter's here, but aren't you glad summer's coming? Hallelujah. Trials are temporary and controlled by God. They do not last forever. They are for a season. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, I love this. He keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us and that we bring glory to him alone. Peter illustrated this truth by referring to the goldsmith. No goldsmith would deliberately waste the precious ore. He would put it in the smelting furnace long enough to remove the cheap impurities. Then he would pour it out and make with it a beautiful article of value. It's been said that the eastern goldsmith kept the metal in the furnace until he could see his face reflected in it. Our Lord keeps us in the furnace of suffering until we reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Just as the assayer tests the gold, now watch this, this is really important. I've got to hurry, but you've got to get this. Just as the assayer tests the gold to see if it is pure gold or counterfeit, so the trials of life test our faith to prove its sincerity. Why is that necessary? A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Too many professing Christians have a false faith. And this will be revealed in the trials of life. The seed that fell on shallow soil produced rootless plants and the plants died when the sun came up, Matthew 13. The sun in the parable represents tribulations or persecution. Now watch. The person who abandons his faith when the going gets tough has only proven that he really had no faith at all. How many times have you seen somebody... Uh, when everything's going fine and they leave church and they're posting Bible verses on Facebook and then a little trouble happens, a little difficulty happens, a little uh, hardship happens and, and they do every other cuss word. What are they doing? They're just proving what's, what's reality. If you're just a good time Christian, you're not a Christian at all. And trials and tribulations and difficulties and pains, things you hate, things you do not desire, things you do not like, things that bring hurt and pain into your life, they really reveal what's really there. Well, why is that important? You want to go to heaven, don't you? I need to know what's real. I need to know where my faith is. God says that your faith is more precious than gold. Are y'all with me? The patriarch Job went through many painful trials, all of them with God's approval. And yet he understood somewhat of this truth about the refiner's fire. Watch what Job said. He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
Ladies and gentlemen, he did. He did. Preacher, what are you saying? Trials are coming. You may be in one now. Johnny, come up here with your Bible. And uh, one of the ladies that normally help you in case we have a, a lady miss, yeah, come on up here. I'm, I'm going I'm to pray. I'm going to pray. Just stand. Go ahead and stand. Stand your feet. And, and uh, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pray. Play, you can play something soft on the, on the CD or whatever. And after we dismiss, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Uh, it's no accident that you're here tonight. It's no accident whatsoever. We believe in divine appointments. Divine appointments. Listen, you may, you may have come tonight wondering what God was trying to tell you, and right now he's thumping in your heart. You need to trust me as your Savior. You need to give him your life. Because I promise you, what's coming down the road, what's coming down the road, you will not get through it without a Savior by your side. And we're going to pray and dismiss, and, and if you will, if you will, usually we're very vocal and very talkative and all that kind, but if you will dismiss yourself as, as quietly and respectfully,